Are you looking for world-class health and wellness advice combined with a dose of inspiration and spiritual encouragement? You've come to the right place. This is nourishment for body and soul. This is Mana, and I'm Dr. Turner. Welcome. Welcome to episode two. So you want to hear a little more, eh? You must be a glutton for punishment. Okay, well, have it your way. So here's the question I know you're asking yourself. Can I relate to this guy? Can I connect to him in any way? I mean, I know he's a successful doctor and all that. And did somebody mention handsome, dashing, sophisticated, suave, charming? But I digress. Anyway, he's all of that stuff, but does he understand me? I get it. So let's talk. I'm going to share with you candidly about some of my greatest struggles. They begin at age three. So here we go. Drum roll, please. You can relate to me if you are from a divorced family or have daddy issues. My parents separated and went through a divorce when I was three And I remember it being a painful and difficult time, as you could imagine. I remember some arguing and then living alone with my mom for several years. I remember my godmother taking care of me and my stepfather coming into my life, who turned out to be a fantastic man. Along the way, however, there's always this yearning of wanting to see your parents back together. Some faint hope deep inside, like a little candle that flickers and just won't go out, that somehow they'll stop arguing and they'll learn to love each other again and they'll come back together again and you'll live together as a happy unit. And I think you never quite get rid of that. I think it, it lingers on until some point you just grow up and you're told and, you know, you, I guess, realize that It's not possible, and you kind of grow out of your childhood naive memories and hopes. But I remember carrying that little hope in my mind and my soul for a long time. And I remember as I was growing up, my relationship wasn't great with my dad. If I could be perfectly frank, he was a very difficult person to get along with. He tended to be very critical, judgmental, harsh, dismissive, rude, demeaning. You could say that he was verbally abusive in some ways. And so, according to the custody arrangement, I would go spend time with him, but it was always really difficult for me emotionally. And many times I would come back home in tears. I remember pulling up to the house and I'd be drying my tears because I didn't want my mom to see how upset I was when I would walk in the door. Typically, my dad would have been arguing with me or berating me about something or other. And it was just so crushing that I'd just be sulking in silence, staring out the window and uh, trying to dab my tears. As soon as we pulled into the driveway, I quickly opened the door, slam it, typically not say much of anything, and slink my way towards the front door. At one point, it got so bad that my mom noticed I was typically depressed and in a funk for like a week after visiting my dad. She said, you need to go get counseling. I'm going to sign you up to find a counselor. Now, understand, I was a 13-year-old boy in seventh grade. So I'm like, counseling? No way. That's for crazy people. That's for kids with mental problems. I don't have mental problems, mom. I'm fine. I don't need a counselor. Thankfully, she ignored that and pushed forward. 
and got me a wonderful counselor who's an African-American man, which is highly important to the story because my dad's African-American and my mom was white. And so I saw African-American men in such a negative light on that interpersonal basis. It was great to see now someone in a positive light who was a professional, he was kind, he was articulate, he listened, he was empathetic, and he was a whole lot of things that my dad wasn't. And it just opened up a ray of light and of healing in my soul. And I remember being really blessed by that experience. But I continued to struggle in my relationship with my dad, and ultimately that didn't get solved until I found God and I understood God's forgiveness. And then I had a heart-to-heart discussion with my dad, and we'll probably talk about that at some later podcast episode, but it turned out to be a beautiful reconciliation. And in our adult lives, we've gone on to have a closer relationship than we ever did as children. And this culminated in a very poignant but beautiful way over the last couple of years as he developed Alzheimer's. And I had to move him into a care home in Phoenix, and he ultimately passed away just a couple months ago. And I was at his bedside in the last few days of his life. And just thanking God that we didn't have to die in estrangement, he didn't have to die in bitterness, but there was love, and I could hold his hand, and I could talk to him, and I could even sing to him uh, in some of his last moments on earth, and that I was going to see him again in heaven. So God did an absolutely beautiful work in that, and uh, I'll be forever grateful. Well, you also can relate to me if you have ever felt out of place. As I mentioned, my mom was white, and when she remarried, she remarried a fantastic uh, gentleman who was also white. So we grew up as this white family in mainly white neighborhoods in Northern California. I had a younger brother and a younger sister, so I looked like the odd person out in this family. Sometimes people wondered if I was adopted, and I'd typically go to school and I'd be the only brown or black person there. And this did cause some trouble along the way, as you might imagine. There was bullying, getting picked on being called names, um, just feeling out of place. You know, I had curly hair, and I remember being ashamed of my big curly hair at one point. I like to keep my hair kind of short. Um, I remember being extremely ashamed of my middle name. So my middle name is Kwame, K-W-A-M-E, and that's an African name that my father gave me. He had spent some time in Ghana, and the leader at the time was named Kwame Nkrumah. This was in the late 60s or early 70s, I believe. My father wanted me to give, uh, wanted to give me that name. And all growing up, you could not get me to tell you what my middle name was. Nobody at school knew my middle name. Nobody on baseball, nobody on soccer team. Uh, I would not divulge that. It was just too other. It was too different. It was too strange. And it clearly marked me as some kind of foreign, strange black person. And I just wanted to fit in with all the other white kids at school in suburban USA, uh, San Francisco Bay Area. So that was a point of difficulty for me. And I always felt a bit out of place in that regard. So perhaps you can relate. Next up, you could relate to me if you were ever the fat kid. So although I am the paragon of health and wellness at the moment, uh, I was not always that way. In fact, genetically, I have a predisposition to be a little chunky. And when I was young, I used to wear husky-sized clothing, which basically meant, you know, your kid was a little chubby, and that's the polite way of saying it. So, although I was athletic, I was always in the husky size clothing. And I remember right around puberty, right? I remember looking at the other guys, you know, I'd go play basketball or play soccer with them. And I'm like, this is not fair. Like, they have little pec muscles and stuff. And I'm just all kind of soft and doughy, you know, and my, my pecs. And 
some of these guys have abs. You can actually see ab muscles. I'm like, I can't see any ab muscles, you know? I'm just kind of doughy and, and soft. I have little rolls, you know? And then the ultimate embarrassment, well, this is my own birthday party. This was in seventh grade. It's my own birthday party. We're going to go to the ocean. This is Northern California. You need a wetsuit, okay? So we go. We rent, we, we rent wetsuits. We're all standing around. Imagine seven or eight, you know, 13-year-old boys getting in their wetsuits, ready to start this party. And I'm struggling to pull my wetsuit on, okay? I'm feeling like a fat little sausage trying to pull this wetsuit up. And I kind of got it up around my legs and my backside. <sighs> I've always genetically had a big backside too. So this wetsuit was just tight and I'm trying to zip it up and it's just pinching my little chub rolls and my little doughy chest. And I'm trying to suck in my gut and I'm feeling like minimal amounts of air. I swear, I think it was my mom, somebody, some adult had to come help me zip it up super tight up the front, right? And I'm like sucking everything and everything's getting pulled in. It was like, spanks you know and then zip they zip this little fat sausage boy up and i'm like waddling over meanwhile the kids are bored to tears like waiting for me to get on the boogie boards and get this party started right and i'm just i was mortified it was so unfair and all the little boys with abs and pec muscles were just you know running around their wetsuits ready to get the party going ah so it took me a while to get over that i I might (laughs) still need some healing i'm not sure anyway gosh i'm having uh, emotions talking about that. So yes, I was a fat kid at times. That didn't change until high school. And that's when I took my high school health class. Um, And uh, sophomore year of high school started getting healthy, you know, just got like a light switch flicked on underneath me about eating right and actually got too into it. And actually looking back, I would say I developed an eating disorder. I actually would say that I had a male eating disorder because I wouldn't eat anything if it had fat in it. So this was during the low fat, massive diet emphasis of like the late 80s, early 90s. And so I was scrupulously reading labels. If it had any fat in it, I was not eating it. So I was eating like oatmeal, tuna, beans, you know, that's it. No fat, maybe some sugar here and there. That's it. And I started to lose a lot of weight. I started to run. But I started to become really just obsessed with being lean and looking on it now, especially nowadays with social media and Instagram and phones and all that. I would say that I was a self-obsessed teenager with a body image disorder. Um, And thankfully, it wasn't amplified as much as it can be nowadays. So I have a lot of sympathy for young people, including young men in that situation. It got so bad one time. I remember I was going to the bank with my mom. The teller asked my mom, like, what's wrong with your son? Is he okay? And I had lost so much weight. And I remember also my hand stopped working. So my left hand, it didn't open and close well. And my mom really just kind of laid into me at this point. She's like, Michael, I don't know what's going on. You've taken this too far. You're not eating any of my cookies. You're not eating, you know, any of the stuff that I make. You're reading every dang label. This is just too far. What is wrong with you? And when my hand stopped working, when the lady at the bank thought I looked ill, I (laughs) that was my wake-up call. So I, I turned some things around at that point. Now, hopefully, I do believe I found that nice middle ground to be healthy for the right reasons, but also all things in moderation. And I talk a lot about that with my patients, right? They'll say, well, you know, how do I eat in a healthy way? How do I lose weight? You know, I know I should not be eating any sugar and I know I got to cut out all the desserts. And I'm like, well, you know, first thing is let's make this sustainable. You know, it needs to feel sustainable, right? If you're just functioning on willpower and deprivation and I can't and I shouldn't and I won't and I feel guilty if I do, blah, blah, blah. That's not going to last. You know, that's not sustainable. Number one. Number two, it's not fun. You know, I mean, God gave us taste buds. He created 
flavors for a reason. They're delightful. You know, we have cultures all over the world that come up with amazing ways to eat food. I'm a big time foodie. I love flavors, right? I can't imagine life without tiramisu or creme brulee or tapioca pudding. Uh, you know, I could go on good chocolate mousse, um, watermelon, you know, there's just so many flavors. And so I tell people it's really about moderation. It's okay. You just don't have dessert every night. You know, you don't have to go back for seconds. You can have a reasonable amount. You can share it with your spouse, you know, et cetera. So I think I found a nice moderation in my life. But if you were ever the fat kid, I can understand you. How about this one? You can relate to me if you were ever a stranger in a foreign culture. So when I was 16, I got really interested in being an exchange student. I was growing up in my high school in Northern California, never much had particular exposure to foreign countries, never much interest other than band. Uh, let's see, it was my sophomore year of band. I played trumpet. This beautiful young woman with a tan and an amazing accent sat down next to me out of nowhere. She was a senior. Her name was Christina. And she was fresh back from New Zealand. I didn't even know where that was, but I knew it was cool. And she was cool. And so I'm like, I need to keep talking to her about any random topic I can come up with because I just like staring at her and she smells good and she's got a great tan and this accent is amazing and I'm smitten, et cetera. But anyway, where did she go? And, you know, how can I do something like that? So I got really interested in being an exchange student. My high school had a little exchange student club called AFS. And so I was an official AFS exchange student to the Dominican Republic, which I'm sure will come up in other episodes and other stories. There's a lot tied into that year. It turns out to be the most significant year of my life, bar none, the most life-changing, the most um, direction-setting. It was extraordinary year. But during that year, as you can imagine, I was extremely homesick. So I lived with a host family, went to school in Spanish. Nobody in my family spoke much English. Um, I was away from all my friends, my peer group, needless to say. This was in the early 90s. So this was pre-cell phone. This was pre-internet. This was pre-social media. If I wanted to call my family, I would get on a landline if it was available, you know, call them. Um, If I wanted to call some random teenage friend at home, I had to like call the family phone number line and hope that Johnny was home at the time and not at baseball practice. You know, who knows where Johnny could have been. Plus, we had a time zone difference. And so I just I had to just make make my new life in the Dominican Republic, which is exactly the point. Right. But in doing that, there are some real challenges that you face. You know, you feel like an outcast. You feel stupid. First of all, I knew I was intelligent, but not having mastery of the language. You're limited in how you can express yourself. So I had that very uncomfortable feeling of people looking at me like, you know, judging me a little bit and and just feeling muted, not able to express myself, right? Not able to engage in an intelligent way, in an articulate way with any kind of depth like I'd want to. Um, And, you know, being very challenged in that way. And I remember falling asleep, crying many times out of homesickness, just wanting to be back with my friends, my peer group, my high school where things were comfortable and easy. And here I was in the Dominican Republic and mosquitoes were biting me and I didn't understand the language and I was living in a big city and a bunch of experiences were just new and different and challenging at the same time. And because of that, I have a deep sense of understanding and respect and appreciation, I guess, and sympathy for people who are here from other places and that I would always be welcoming in my approach and that hopefully we as a community 
would be welcoming, right? That's the beauty of our country. We are the world's country, if you think about it. We have people from every single nation here, and we've been welcoming people from all over the world since we got started. Not always under the best circumstances, granted. I mean, slavery, namely, uh, and other types of scenarios where people came sometimes out of hardship. But in the end, this is everybody's country. It's the world's country when we're at our best. And I have uh, such, I find it beautiful. And I also can be sympathetic for that person who's a refugee from, you know, Iraq recently and who has PTSD from seeing family members lost in a car bomb. I've had patients like that, right? That refugee from um, Ukraine, that refugee from Central America who had to cross a river uh, just to try to find a job so uh, they could support themselves. And, you know, that person who was, uh, came here was a professional actually in Colombia, a bank level manager with a college education. He came here legally, took him a while. He had political asylum. And when they started him here, they put him out in the fields to pick apples. Okay. He had never picked apples in his life. He didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> he was overheated, hot. Um, he was just toughing it out because that was the only job available for him at the time. And he did that for years using porta potties, all of that. I understand. Uh, in, in many ways what that's like. And so if you've ever felt that, um, you can understand me and I can understand you. Furthermore, I would say you can relate to me if you have ever felt in over your head, okay? Just in over your head, uh, overcommitted, overwhelmed, facing a gigantic challenge that you feel like perhaps you're not up for. I felt this way when I got to Stanford and I felt this way particularly as I began my second year. My second year was the year I decided to become a pre-med. So voila, I had to do four years of pre-med now in three, okay? Made worse by the fact that I didn't do any of that preparation in high school, not knowing that I wanted to have a medical career. So I was not one of those people who took advanced chemistry, advanced math, advanced sciences of any kind in high school. I got good grades, but no particular emphasis on science or medicine. So here I was at Stanford, hugely competitive, as you can imagine, pre-med, trying to do this all four years in three years. I remember the stress level was extraordinary, uh, staying up late, going to office hours, studying you know, on the weekends, just the grind and the sense of like a, a cloud over me at all times of, of work and things needing to get done and problem sets and papers and all of that. And uh, I remember... It came down to my last quarter graduation. I kept having this bad dream that somehow I didn't check some box somewhere, some little requirement like some PE class or some anthropology credit or something like slipped through the cracks somehow. And I was just perseverating on this and it was this bad dream. And I remember I, I was really unsettled by this, partly because I'm also a poor planner and it's you know fairly likely that something like that would have happened. So I'm just saying, oh God, please, I got to graduate. Like my parents are going to kill me if I'm like two credits short because of some ridiculous anthropology thing that I just overlooked when I was a freshman. I should have done it and I didn't pay attention and now I can't graduate and we got to spend more thousands of dollars, more money, right? So anyway, again, back in that day, this was all pre-internet, pre-computer technology for the most part. So the way you knew, literally the way you knew if you actually graduated you went down to the student union on a bulletin board. Your name was printed up on a piece of paper, okay, tacked to this bulletin board. You had to go find it. If your name was on the paper, you were going to walk next week. If it wasn't, you weren't, period, end of discussion, right? So I went down the student union. I'm like, please, God, please, God, please, God, 
please. <laughs> I, don't, I probably could do this a little bit longer, but I really don't want to. I got no more time and energy and money for this right now. Please, God. And I'm looking at the board. I'm like scrolling down my fingers on that thing, right? I'm like, Michael Turner. Yes. Yes. Did it. Yes. And I remember getting wildly enthusiastic, probably looked like a crazy person, um, but we got it done. That name was on there, got the graduation done. So there we have it. Those are a couple stories, friends, some of my greatest challenges growing up. Um, I will look forward to visiting with you a little more in our next episode, where I discuss how I was fired from the first five jobs that I ever had, my adventures on a shoestring budget without health insurance my first day at Harvard, and the time I got mad at my wife for shrinking my jeans. Spoiler alert, I had gotten fat and out of shape. Until then, I am yours truly, Dr. Turner. This wraps up another edition of MANA. I enjoyed our time together, and I hope that this has inspired you towards a healthy and happy life. Be blessed.